hold on to your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Uh, hello and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, and it should be a fantastic show tonight. Looking forward to this show. Started off the week talking once again about mythology and finding your destiny, work of Joseph Campbell, and uh, well, I think tonight's show is continuing that theme a bit because the topic is Little Women, and my guests to talk about this is Sarah Thornton. You're the artistic director of the Cloverdale Playhouse? I am. I'm the artistic director of the Cloverdale Playhouse and director and uh, adapter, I suppose, of this play of Little Women. So, yes, it's a famous book. I told you off air, in full disclosure, I've actually never read Little Women. I've heard of it, obviously. It's right. in the culture. I think my closest I got to it was a Friends episode where yes. Joey reads Little Women. I and, love that episode. Yeah. And he puts the book in the freezer. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. That's a great episode. Well, I'm hoping that for people who have loved this book their whole lives and for people who have never heard this story, that everyone will get something out of it. I've tried to be incredibly true to the book Everything in it is straight out of Louise May Alcott's words, um, and and it's a very very heavy book. So it's next to impossible to have everything in it in the play, or we'd be there all night. Uh, so I've tried to pick the moments I felt were everyone's favorites, or the or the most important for Joe's journey. Joe is the main character, yes. and I'm I'm I focus on her story in my adaptation. Now. It is difficult enough to take a ready-made play and direct it and make it happen, especially in community theater, uh, maybe compared to a full-fledged theater where you have a lot of resources. Right. So you are not only doing a play that's already there, like you said, you've adapted this and you're coming through a lot of precious material to people. Um, so how, well, I'll begin this way. Why Little Women? Well, Little Women's been my mother's favorite book, my grandmother's favorite book, one of my favorite books. It's I grew up with that story, and I, I've loved it since I was a little girl. I, I immediately identified with Joe. I, I had never read a and I love to read, and I had never read a character that close to myself. Right. Even as a kid, I, I found I saw myself in her, and as I've gotten older, it's frightening how much more I see myself in her every day. Um, and and so I, I just I fell in love with it. My mom had a has a china doll of Joe reading a book oh. that I used to just stare at lovingly. Um, but you know, so that's that's sort of why Little Women specifically. But also, I I had been eager to get back to adapting our Shakespeare Company in New York, Bama Theater Company, which no longer exists. Uh, I was the person that adapted all of our Shakespeare scripts for this method of storytelling that I fell in love with of a trunk show, of doing it very simply, uh, minimal set, minimal costumes, everything kind of comes out of the trunk and that allows you to change locations very easily. So I started thinking that that would be a great way to do Little Women because Little Women as a book jumps around in time and space and that's very hard to stage when you're in France, one chapter, and then the next chapter you're in New York, and then the next chapter you're in Concord, and then the next chapter you're outside and then inside, it, it's near to impossible to do that on this tiny stage like the Playhouse. 
but a trunk show makes it possible. Well, and so this took you, you really spent your time with this. It took you a year and a half? About a year and a half and several drafts and several late night writing sessions by Candlelight, just like Joe herself writes. Um, I I was channeling her brilliance, trying to anyway. (laughs) Um, So yeah, about a year and a half. And then now here we are. About three weeks, a little over three weeks of rehearsal and up we go. We've got one more week. Now, Joe is very much autobiographical. It, the whole book is Louisa May Alcott's life. She yeah. based the sisters on her sisters. Every character in it is based off of someone real. And Joe is Louisa May Alcott. I actually have been reading lots of Louisa May Alcott's journals and letters and things like that as I've been working on the play. And I just think she's brilliant. But it's so interesting to me how much of little phrases that she would use in her own letters to her family show up in Little Women. She signs things topsy-turvy Louisa, and then in the play, Joe says topsy-turvy Joe. Things, little things like that that I just adore about it that make it so personal. Well, and reality bleeding over into the fiction, I love that, where life gets a little romanticized, Mm -hmm. and it's cool that she... From again, I haven't read the book, but I did do some reading up on what are the major themes and and what's going on with the book and the story. And it, I've loved the idea that she's taking real life, you know, post Civil War, shortly after the Civil War, and she's really giving a tale of well, American women. I think there is a unique um, thing to the United States and women in the United States where they. They found liberation and fought for liberation in ways, I think, different than other countries. There's that pioneer aspect. There's mm-hmm. the sort of, you, you were obviously fighting against things to come into your own. But uh, I like the idea, number one, that she doesn't try to define herself, at least Joe doesn't seem to, in terms of marriage or right. just the right, simple marriage. Right. I think that's part partially why Little Women's still so relevant um, because yes it does take place in the, in the Civil War and then post-Civil War but but because these women these young girls in the beginning and then they age quite a bit over the course of the story uh, they are all sort of trapped in what is expected of them and women still have this issue <laughs> but what is expected of, of them is marrying for money and their family didn't have money mm. so the girls had to make a good match to try to help their family they all had jobs from a very early age trying to help keep the house um, and, and so a lot of that is, is Joe become, becomes rather iconic because she fights against that tooth and nail and her sisters all they have their own journeys and lessons to learn you know I don't want to give it all away for those who don't know the story but but you know the eldest sister's very um, structured very by the book of what is expected of her she needs a good match and she needs to have a family and it's all about you know towing the line and then Joe is this tomboy artist no man can tame me sure and what's great about that, too, is that she still doesn't know who she is for a lot of the book. She spends a lot of time, I, I, I call it struggling against her life with both fists, because she wants to go off to war and fight with father, and she wants to be a writer, and she wants to travel the world, and that's just not something at that time that women could do. And Louisa May Alcott had that same struggle. She had to write her stories under a surname, under a male name in order to get them published for a long time. And and Joe did the same thing in the book. But one thing that Louisa May Alcott did was she was a nurse during the Civil War. And so her first sort of big success as a writer was her journals about being a nurse in the Civil War. 
But her publisher said, yes, that's great, but we really think you should be writing for girls. Huh. Right. And so she, you know, resisted that tooth and nail. Why do I have to write for girls? Just because I'm a woman, I have to write for girls, you know. But eventually she just sat down and did it. And she knocked out the whole book in a matter of months. And it became the thing that got her out of poverty. It pulled her up into, you know, eternal writing glory. Yeah. And it's and it's her own story, which is something that Joe learns in the course of Little Women. So yes, very, very autobiographical. Well, and it's amazing that she was able to accomplish a story that spans several lifetimes in terms of each person's life and how it comes about. And it's very refreshing for me because, again, I've been focusing a lot with this show on, like, where am I going? Mm -hmm. How am I progressing? How's the world progressing? Like, the big historical uh, questions. And a key to helping understand that, for me, people have asked me, what's your faith? if you have any, um, is pretty much the power of narrative, the stories we tell ourselves. I think the most important things come from the stories we tell about our kind of inner world, what's Mm -hmm. going on, are we being honest with ourselves personally, and then also the outer world, like Mm -hmm. what's going on with history, with society. And one of the best things is to look at stories that are a bit removed from our time and place, whether it's old mythology. Last night we were sharing old Hindu myths uh, about the the churning of the ocean to find the butter of immortality. And it's uh, very much uh, uh, apropos for our times, uh, especially Mm -hmm. things like nuclear weapons and big geopolitical stories. But I love the idea, at least from what I've read of summaries with this book, of how you see over a lifetime... I'll put it this way. I've been watching the show on Netflix called The Get Down. It's about when disco is kind of bleeding into the hip-hop, like Grandmaster Flash and these sort of things. And there's this one uh, scene where the main character is completely and utterly heartbroken. And he's got this silver tongue. He's a poet. He's going to be a star, huge rapper in the future. They keep foreshadowing that. And there's this one girl he's always been friends with since they're in elementary school, and they're not on the outs, and he's so heartbroken trying to get over her. And his friend goes, man, the way I look at it is you don't know who's going to end up with whom. You don't know how life's going to work out. And that's so much of what Joseph Campbell in his writings points out is that it's not about planning out your life. It's going into the, the scary moment, into the dark cave and, you know, braving the ocean, braving the sea, or or braving a world of, of in many ways, men in this time period, Alcott's writing, where she just goes out there. And the book has this turn where you think, I don't give anything away, certain people are going to end up together, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And I love how you can see over a lifetime that, okay, maybe I had a failed relationship. Maybe life isn't working out exactly, but Life will work out. Destiny, if you want to use that word, will work out itself in the end. Well, that's sort of the the beauty of it, right? Of any story, but everyone's got their own story, and and Joe is writing her own story, and Louisa May Alcott was writing her own story, and on and on it goes. But that you don't know how things are going to play out, and and especially in in their world and in our current world, when things are a little upside down, and 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 there's a lot going on, and you're unsure. I mean, they're coming through a war, you know, and and what that outcome will be no one at the time could know right so how they navigate their lives and how they figure out the harder lessons and at a time when everything seemed a little unsure which i think that's always true of every time period of yes. everyone's lives we're certainly going through it right now you know and and that you don't know how things are going to work out you really don't and you know you saying that like these publishers turned her down for journals about being a nurse in the civil war that's 
it's a shame they put people in the boxes because I can't think of somebody better, whether it's Alcott or somebody else. If you're a nurse or a doctor in the Civil War, you're seeing the horrors of warfare where medicine hasn't really caught up to weapons technology. Mm -hmm. You're seeing people probably traumatized coming from the battlefield. You're also seeing not professional armies necessarily. It's a fascinating story in of itself and in and of itself. And it's amazing that, oh, no, you're a woman. Right. right girl stories but still as you said she knocks it out of the park and i'm i'm doing us a disservice because we're talking like the play's already passed like this is something you're doing your best <laughs> we're in the middle of showing we're in the middle we just finished our first week we have one more uh tomorrow is our is our brush up rehearsal which we it's called walk up wednesday where people can pay whatever they're they're able to at the door but this year we're doing it for a good cause um we're doing any donations made with cash are being donated to the mid alabama coalition for the homeless and if you bring an unwrapped toy we will add that to our donation to the dixie electric toy drive so that's your ticket to see little women at our on our walk up wednesday brush up rehearsal and then we also have full performances thursday friday saturday evenings and then sunday matinee and then we're done and it's over and then there's 7 30 on the weeknight 7 30 uh wednesday thursday friday saturday and two o'clock on sunday okay very yeah. very cool and again that's the cloverdale playhouse right on fairview there in right cloverdale on road. fairview and cloverdale road yeah i'm walking distance now so you have no excuse indeed, <laughs> indeed. And, and, and actually another guy living in cloverdale his name's brennan uh he said uh, you know, when you're a single guy, what do you do? Well, you take your mom and your youngest sister to go see Little Women. And he had this biggest smile on the face, sort of the mom oh, and the sister. And, um, it, and it's a great venue, folks. It's very yeah, intimate. It's um, I love going to see The Crucible there. That was yeah, that very was well done. One. Thank you. Um, and again, appropriate for our times uh, in so many ways. Um, very appropriate. Now, I... Want to really get into your story though? Okay. Because you're born and raised here, correct? I was born in New Jersey. New, okay. But raised here. I, okay. We moved here when I was three, and my younger brother was one. Um, and so, uh, for the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, ironically, we moved up from the New York, New Jersey area to Alabama for theater. So it's a little backwards, but that's what we did. <laughs> um, so we lived here, and I went to all the way through Forest Avenue and Baldwin and BTW Magnet. And then when I graduated, I went away to college in Ohio at Wright State University, which is a very, very excellent theater school in the middle of Ohio. And then I returned to Alabama. The Alabama Shakespeare Festival used to have an MFA program, and I was in their penultimate Oh, wow. class of the MFA program, which I'm very grateful for. And then I went to New York. And I had been in New York for seven, eight some odd years before I moved home again. Well, and the part of the story that I'm, I think, very unfamiliar with, because we've known each other over the years, right. but we've, we don't really know each other that well, I would suspect. I'm an enigma. Yes, and, <laughs> well, I try to be a sphinx. I hope I'm not giving too much away. But when you're in New York City, what exactly were you doing? Who were you working with and what type of work were you doing? Well, you know, being a, being an actor in New York City is, is a... An age-old tale. You At least know, it wasn't Los Angeles. No, not Los Angeles. I love New York. I really do. Um, I I auditioned all the time. I'm, I'm in the Equity Actors Association. It's the union. So yeah. I went to New York and I tried to make a career of it. And I actually did all right now and then, you know. But in between those times, you're just doing the hustle and living in, you know, living the dream. So when you're doing that, that hustle... Is it anything you can get plays, 
television, movies, whatever. Well, you know, sure. I like I like to eat, so <laughs> yes. a paycheck would be nice. But but I I love the stage. That's where I got all of my training. So that was sort of where I focused. And I had a, a theater company there with several other alumni from the MFA program at ASF called Bama Theater Company. So that was my once or twice a year. I knew I had a gig, yeah. and I and it was a fun gig. It was working with my friends, and we had this shorthand, and we and working on Shakespeare, which is our passion, you know. So that was great. That was sort of my constant. I knew I had Bama. I always had Bama while I was out, you know, auditioning four and five times a day and then going to work in bars and restaurants to make the bills. And it's it's not an easy life by any stretch. And, and I send nothing but love and energy to those who are still doing it. <laughs> well, and I'd imagine for me, the toughest part had to be the like, I can sit up here and talk all day long, and usually it's blather, but, and I, I tend to think if you give me enough time, I can knock something out of the park, but I'd imagine just the idea of an audition is incredibly nerve-wracking. Did you have, do you have any weird stories from oh, doing an audition? I have so many weird stories. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> They're always weird. No, it just, it, it's true. Being, doing auditioning is very odd, but... Uh, I think it's a good thing for professional actors to think of it as your professional auditioner yes. who occasionally gets to do a play, you know, because that you more often than not, you're going to hear no. And when you hear yes, it's, it should always be a, you know, a pleasant surprise, but you can't put all your eggs in any baskets. You have to keep on going to the next audition and the next, and everyone is an opportunity to learn something. I, I will say, all right, you want a funny? Oh yes. Yeah. All right. So I went into audition for my first show off Broadway and I was super nervous because I hadn't auditioned for Off-Broadway before. And, and I went in and as I walked into the door and they say the first t 20 seconds of your audition can make or break you because mm. that's the, you and how you are in a room. First impression. First yeah. impressions are important. So I walk in the room and I close the door behind me and I closed my skirt in the door. Oh, crap. And I didn't realize it. So I started to walk and of course got yanked immediately back into the door. At that point, I thought, well, uh, there's no recovering from this. So I opened the door and I, I gave a little curtsy <laughs> and they applauded. <laughs> and then I walked in and in the middle of this very, very powerful speech that they had me auditioning with, I got, you know, when your throat just catches? Oh, yeah. And I couldn't, I, tears were streaming down my face. I was had a horrible coughing fit in the middle of the speech. It was, I thought, well, at this point, there's just no hope. So I, you know, I laughed my way off of it and, and I thanked them profusely. And I wished them well and thought I was never going to hear from them again. And then I booked it. <laughs> wow. Okay. I don't know how, but they had they saw something in me that I clearly hadn't demonstrated. What on was my that own. show? Was that it was one? called Anthem. Actually, it was uh, based off of an, the Ayn Rand book. Yeah, yeah. There was book. they adapted it for the stage, and wow. it was in collaboration with Austin Shakespeare Festival. And so that was it. Very the cool. Barishnikov Art Center. Very, very cool. Yeah, Thank finding a, a light bulb underground, finding the filaments and yeah. putting it all together. Yeah, that's yeah. of Ayn Rand's books. That one I I love because it's short. It, it is short. Jeez. It is short. Yes, with Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> I was like, goodness, Atlas put me to sleep. It's like, Ayn, how many times right. do you have to keep making the same point over and over again? It And describe to me, because, you know, Montgomery occasionally will do a fairly job. I've been a hermit a lot, so I haven't been downtown in a while. I haven't been out and about. But describe to me the magic of New York City at this time of the year. Oh, I miss it so much. This is the best time to be there. Uh, it, everything is just lit up and, and there's a chill, you know, but it's not freezing yet. 
and all the leaves have already changed. Fall into Christmas season in New York is just is gorgeous. You know, there's there's subway performers every day, but they sing carols and and you, there's there's just a happy feeling in the city. It's just beautiful. You know, uh, Radio City is all lit up. You've got the tree at Rockefeller Center. Everybody puts really beautiful twinkly lights in their windows, and it's just it's gorgeous this time of year. Yeah, I'd imagine it, it could be uh, romantic. Oh, I, yes. I wish I could go to New York. I, I want to go to New York again because I've only been once when I was 12. I didn't really, I remember it, but I don't, right. I didn't really experience New York City yeah. the way I would uh, today. And uh, it's, I don't know, I love hearing stories about folks that have gone up there and, and experienced it. And it had to be nerve wracking. That's sort of. Uh, again, a big theme on the show lately has been the hero's journey. Right. Sort of going into the unknown and figuring out uh, what would you say are the big things that change you that not to put you on the spot, but oh, like gosh. what you took away from your time up there and, and trying to make it up there. I don't know if there was any one thing that changed me. I I think it's a slow burn when, yeah. when you're there for an extended amount of time. You know, they say if you're there 10 years, you're truly a New Yorker. I don't think that's true. I think it just happens for everybody at different points. I think mine sort of started to happen around the third or fourth year where I became a little bit more bitter <laughs> <laughs> without realizing it. Um, you know, you, you get tougher. It definitely is a city that makes you tough but you try not to let it harden you. Right. Um, and, and I think, for me anyway, the point, the point where I started to feel hardened, I thought, I think I need to leave. Um, so I guess, I mean, it changed me in that way. I, I certainly was, it, I became braver. More I became tougher. Savvy. Very, you have to be street savvy. Yeah. And being, you know, growing up in Montgomery, Alabama, that's, it's a rough transition, you know, of, of you can't be Pollyanna necessarily right. in New York. It's not an easy place to do that. Um, now, you don't, and this one angle, you don't strike me as like, you don't have the heavy Southern draw. I mean, your folks are from that New Jersey area. Yeah. Half of my family's from that area. Yeah. And I constantly get asked, even though I have a little bit of a draw, where are you from? Like, right. Here. Well, you know, but if I'm around certain people from here long enough, my actor ear just, I don't even realize I'm doing it. And suddenly I'm yeah, the very, very Alabama. So it does come out now and then. Did um, people pick up on it up there? Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, yes. Every little thing. But, you know, in New York, there's people from everywhere, right. all over the world. So, and that's part of what I love about it. I think that's some, a, a positive way that the city can change you, too, is it opens your eyes to how many people there are in the world and everyone can have a different opinion and a different experience and yet we're all coexisting in this teeny little microwave oven right. of a you know it's not, it's not really teeny but it feels that way when it's very crowded and you know you I, so I, I think that's a positive way the city can change you it changes your mindset it, it sort of broadens your scope the possibilities, all these different lives yeah. being yeah. going on around you. Well, one subway train, you can hear 15 different languages, you know, and, and that's something that I think everyone should experience. Well, and that's something that uh, always baffles me. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of crowds. Again, it's the hermit coming out of mm -hmm. me. It's like George Carlin said, I like people one-on-one, -on -one, maybe two or three people in a room talking, but when it becomes 10, 100, thousands of people... Right. Ah! leave me alone. Right. And so I'd imagine, though, as we were talking about with how difficult it is to tell a story about somebody's life in, you know, four or five characters, when you sit back and go, okay, just the thousands of people around me that I can see, what is that person's life like? I'll sit back and start thinking and right. making up a story around somebody. 
It has to be uh, humbling, I'd imagine. Oh, you can feel very small. You yeah. know, you can, f- and, and, and I think that's a good thing. I don't mean in, like you're yeah. depleted, but I mean, it can be that too. <laughs> but you, you feel very small in the way that you realize how much world there is besides yours. Uh, and you're faced with it head on m- m- all day long until you get retreat to your, you know, one bedroom, whatever, mattress sized closet that you live in for a thousand dollars a month <laughs> i was lucky because i lived in astoria which is, was is an up-and-coming neighborhood out there but they call it actoria so it's like a nice. big sprawling gorgeous artsy place i loved living there but but it is i mean and and it's a funny thing because people in new york develop this habit of being by themselves in a crowd you know it's all about you always hit the subway with ipod ear earbuds you always have music in your ear or you're reading a book or you're reading a newspaper or you're working on your blackberry and you find this um, blackberries are they still a thing i don't know <laughs> i never had one of those um but you find your find ways to sort of hide in public a lot which is necessary hmm. so that your daily commute isn't you know just always people in your in, in your, your face, face all day long you know and and then there are times when you want that when you connect with people and it surprises you uh, you now, know were there ever times talking about being street savvy where you're like whoa that was a dangerous moment oh gosh yes you face those frequently in the city unfortunately um thankfully nothing too bad too terrible when i was there you know i was i worked right up the street from the empire state building uh and there was that shooting in front that happened as i was coming up the steps of my subway so that was a rough day for me mm-hmm. um and and i wasn't there uh during 9 11 thankfully i was here i was a senior in high school when that happened but um but that feeling is still is still there sometimes you know it's you can't you can't be scared. You can't live every day at worried of what might happen because you got to get up and you have to get on the train and you have to go to work and you have to get back out of work and go back on the train. You can't hide. And and that makes you brave, you know? And the city has this resilience yeah. that that gets under your skin and you become resilient if that makes sense. Well, and I think you are a a, a gem to have back here in oh, Montgomery thank you. for doing what you're doing with the Playhouse because I've been to several shows and it's always a worthwhile um, time, and I, I've got to come see Little Women Thank now. you. I hope you will. Well, we got to hit a quick break here, Sarah. But, okay. Um, coming back, uh, we'll, we, we'll talk about whatever, just freewheeling conversation. Just Love some it. more on Little Women, whatever. I dig it. I mean, you can ask me questions. Oh, if you okay. want me to Ooh, let me anything <laughs> Try to embarrass me. I love embarrassing. I told one of myself the other day. It was ter- the first time I ever got really drunk. Oh, my. And it was um, it was in high school. And let's just say um, something very embarrassing happened to me that I didn't figure out until I was in the middle of school. Oh, no. And somebody yelled out what happened to me. Yikes. Just don't pass out when there are a bunch of young guys around. Okay. I'll try not to. (laughs) And that goes for everybody. (laughs) It happened to me. Um, And actually, the guy did it to me. Ended up being my best friend. Oh. So, you know, it it worked out. See, you never know how your life's going to work out. It worked out. But (laughs) the album of the day, and I do this every day, uh, big vinyl kick I'm on right now. And Emily Hayes, old lady Hayes, she calls herself that. I'm not being rude. She, for instance, when she's hungover, she doesn't say, I'm hungover. She says, my bones hurt. (laughs) And she blames all sorts of things. You know, she's in the Urban Dictionary. We can look her up and get the exact definition of an old lady Hayes. I'm a bit of an old man Clark, though. So it's a (laughs) two-way street. But she gave me for my birthday last Friday three albums. Yesterday, the album day was Changes, the David Bowie kind of greatest hit that had that Changes single on it. And then she gave me an 
Lonely and Blue. It's a greatest hit collection that came out in 2013 of Otis Redding, and it's a blue vinyl version, kind of this translucent cool. blue. And some of these songs are just absolutely remarkable. Uh, this one in particular is called Free Me. Folks, you're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, talking with Sarah Thornton from the Cloverdale Playhouse, and we'll be right back after this. to the program listen to the joey clark radio hour my guest this evening is sarah thornton we're listening to i've got dreams to remember otis redding and i was telling you off air sarah that this song just hit me yeah uh deeply um i think it's set after a breakup and he's remembering uh good dreams terrible nightmares but i'm not going through any breakup but it's uh I'm at that point in life where you're like, all these options. Mm-hmm. And I like doing radio, but there's a part of me that's like, man, I want to try to pick up whatever the format is, writing a play, whether it's adapting something or writing something. I want to write a book. I want to, you know, I've written a little bit. I've yeah? Given, get essays published here or there. That's awesome. Since doing this show, I have to say the, the block has come up. I get home and I'm just tired. Yeah, that's the hard part. And also I'm burnt out on politics. That was my main trough I was going to. I don't to. think you're alone in that. <laughs> I, everybody is. And well, and the, the news has become insane. Um, and I was wondering, because I saw this with uh, Spacey and Anthony Rapp. Did you ever... I'm not saying did you see something right in front of you, right. but are you, I'll put it this way: Are you surprised by all this? You're already shaking your head. I'm now. not even kind of. I mean, honest, it's terrible. But this, it's. I was just talking about this with some of my coworkers the other day. It's one of those things that right now is a hot button issue, and you know you can't open up the news. Oh, here's a funny story. So uh, my friend was trying to wrap gifts for his family, and he wanted to wrap them in newspaper and twine because that's what his character does in the play. Uh-huh. And he couldn't. And his children are in the play, and he couldn't find a page of the newspaper to wrap his kid's gift in that didn't have something about a sexual predator on it. Not a single page. That's devastating. Right. You know, but but it's one of those things that right now everyone is hyper aware of it. 
But women have known about this for a very, very long time. You know, this isn't news to us. Well, and I think finally, well, one writer put it this way with uh, Weinstein. He said, number one, you don't bite the hand that's feeding you caviar. Everybody's getting rich. Everybody's getting jobs. You kind of know. And then when you do know something's going on, it's like, who do you go to? The Hollywood police? There wasn't right. the internet right. when Weinstein was really big and making all... And, right. and it's like in the back of your head. I've always taken the the posture that heroes in your life or icons in your life are probably flawed people like everybody else. Yeah, that's a hard lesson to learn when your heroes become humans. Oh, yeah. Well, Prince, Prince is a huge one of mine and for to find out the way he died is from an opioid overdose alone in an elevator. Yeah. It's just heart-wrenching. Yeah, but hard. you realize, alright, I mean, they're people they're with their own struggles, so I'm watching Gangs of New York and it's like, Weinstein Company. Right. Well... All right, I guess I can't watch House of Cards anymore. Well, no, they're going to continue it. Did you hear yes. that? Oh, I'm so excited. I love Robin Wright, and Me I too. think she deserves to to see where this role goes. And she was fantastic in Wonder Woman. I just rewatched that, and she's so good in Wonder Woman. And yeah, she's been around since like Forrest Gump. She's been strong. She's a very talented actress. And she was uh, saying in preparation for House of Cards that. When she first read the script, and the script is obviously noir and a little uh, cynical, but she thought it was so cynical that this can't be true to how things right. actually work in D.C. And as she started talking to people, I'd imagine some of it had to do with, you know, the halls of Congress with the first season, but, you know, talking to people that were in the Clinton and the Bush White Houses. Right. And she said... After doing her research, about 90% of this is true. I mean, right. the vice president isn't... Oh, sorry, spoiler alert. Isn't going to kill somebody. <laughs> oh, yeah, spoiler alert. We um, but, like, it is uh, It is a very dark and cynical world, or right. it can be. Right. Um, so, I'm not surprised now that, you know, Conyers is just re- retired today um, and wants his son to take on his legacy. But I'm, I'm not surprised either when it comes yeah. to politics. Um, no. And also, generally, I, I look at the culture and I look at like what comedians talk about, what movies are so often about. Like this is not shocking to me. What's shocking is like the I get Weinstein is shocking because of the network right. and like how much, how many well, tentacles he what, put out there. What people don't know is going on, you know. But but it's also I think I think the thing that makes it the scariest for me anyway is that it's it's power in every situation yes. it's an abuse of power right it's a power struggle and and so that is what I think the thing that scares me is that how people in power there should be like a system of checks and balances so that these things can't happen but it's so frequent it's so and more and more we're hearing about things now you know. I, at the risk of getting too politically motivated oh, sure. right now, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I wonder where there's going to be a line anymore. It doesn't feel like there is one. You know, the line got blurry and then the line got moved of what's acceptable. Oh, sure. And now I'm not sure there is a line and that terrifies me, you know? Oh, and I hear you. See, for me, and uh, we might have a slight disagreement here and that's fine. It's, uh, I, I've always focused on the policy, like don't get into a nuclear war. Uh, don't get into more wars in the Middle East. Uh, the geopolitical stuff is very important to me, but domestic policy, all the same, whether it's tax or healthcare or whatever. And the one thing I found redeeming about our current president is he was sort of upsetting uh, the apple cart and tradition. I like that for this reason. 
Not that I like everything he says, but I like it's a lesson in that traditions and norms can easily be broken, especially in a democracy where if Roy Moore wins, that's what democracy looks like, at least for Alabama in this moment. Um, And it's a volatile system. And so it's a good reminder to folks who maybe find uh, this disturbing that this can happen in a system and you can't rely on like the idea of the independence of the FBI that that's not in law. I mean, it's a tradition that's been going on for a few decades, uh, especially after Hoover, but it is a, it's a reminder to folks that the people get what they want. And we have to be very careful about how much power, again, power corrupts and how much power uh, we give these folks, and we hope that we elect somebody who's going to use it responsibly and wisely. Mm-hmm. But it, part of me thinks that, like, the system we have is, uh, is in a way, antiquated. Like I, I was about to say that. Our world is changing so rapidly, and a lot of these laws and things that have been put into place were put into place so long ago. That's not our current world. It's so it, it's at some point, everything needs to get reevaluated. You know, and and go, okay, here's what our world is like now. Social media, Twitter alone, I think if we haven't learned a lesson about that during this current (laughs) presidency, then we're not paying attention. You know, the power. And okay, so here's how I'm going to bring it back to Little Women. Absolutely. Um, The power of the written word. At the time of Little Women and Louisa May Alcott's filled the book with letters uh, from the characters back and forth to each other and how they how they had to struggle just to send a letter the amount of money it would take to get a stamp or to find a piece of paper or and you send it and you hope that they get it and if you don't hear back did they die in the war you know and and how much it mattered what you said in those letters this could be the last letter somebody reads from you and how much news and important things about people's loved ones were sent through the mail right and now and and it took time and effort to write and you couldn't just quickly you know yep. jot down 120 characters and let it fly without batting, batting an eye about what you said and and the fact that those things are read by people i think that the weight of that the responsibility of that people may not realize all the time how once it's out there somebody read that and maybe they didn't care but maybe somebody else really did and oh. read that as you know gospel truth or whatever it is the power of words is it's so important that people understand the power of of words and actions you know and and with little women particularly i've, I've just been thinking about that a lot but there's this one line um where joe says i i, sh- I shudder to think of the the stamps this letter will need if it, I, I would keep writing forever if economy didn't stop me hmm. you know and and i that just to me always rings rings a bell of like how much she loves to write and but she had these restraints, just like everybody. Just did, like and, much. and and she, you know she and also doesn't have it. any money. You right. know? So the fact that she's away from her family and wants to send them all this news and all these things she's experiencing, but she can't afford to tell them everything. Right. Literally can't afford to, you know. And and that I don't know. That's just been rattling around in my thoughts. I think you're you're absolutely onto something. Um, I start off the show. My first show was on nine eleven. Oh my gosh! And that's also when Irma was coming through. Irma knocked me off air for a minute or two. Wow! Like right in the middle, I'm on this epic monologue, and I'm tying it into David Bowie's Starman, and like all this stuff. And then I was saying, I love the 
the world of sound and especially spoken word. But right after I said sound, <laughs> cuts oh, off man. all this stuff. But the main thing I was getting at is I had a professor at Auburn who talked about how our technological capabilities, and by that he can mean gadgets and networks like the internet and weapons like nuclear weapons, uh, but also our, our political technology. Um, and in many ways, he's worried, and I agree with him, that our moral sensibility, uh, how to make moral sense of these new tech, uh, is very much behind. It's failing us. And one thing he suggests, and I think he's so correct on this, he grabs from uh, the Judaic uh, Christian tradition, but especially Judaism. Uh, the most important thing was like doing what we're doing right now, face-to-face, just having a conversation, mm-hmm. bearing witness to somebody about what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Because it, I've seen it with social media and just with writing, too, uh, that you could have, say, two brilliant minds, and they might be arguing about a topic, and if one guy writes a paper or writes an essay on why he's right, the other guy does a rebuttal, and there's another long-winded rebuttal, and another, and back and forth, back and forth, and sometimes they get heated, and a lot of invectives thrown in there. But if you sit those two guys in a room, most often they will figure out what their problems are very quickly doesn't take 2,000 words and they'll try to start to come to an understanding and I think you're absolutely correct that when we have this technology that allows us to immediately just pour out whatever emotion we're feeling whatever thought we have and spit it out to all the world to see it maybe you should have kept it in yeah, maybe it was just a little too easy to share that with, you know, and, and, and it's one of those things. And it's you're absolutely right. Having a conversation is the first step. Right. And and this is one of the things I always whenever I'm talking about why why theater as a medium needs to stick around, yes. that it teaches you empathy and it teaches you to look at something from someone else's perspective. I mean, I love a million things about theater, but to me, how that serves our society is critical because it teaches you to as Atticus Finch would say, walk a mile and, you know, and it's, and it's something that a lot of people don't have anymore or, or maybe never, I don't know, access to that ability to look at something from someone else's perspective. Not, not in, and politics is, you know, obviously a a world where that needs growth and development, but I think it's all over the place. I think it's everything. I think it's, it's being able to see someone else's reality and accept it and go, Oh, I understand now why this is how you, this is you, this is how you are. And here's your story. And here's how you got there. This is, you know, somebody has a bad day right? and then you go, wow, that person's not very nice. And then you look back at it and you go, Oh, they're going through this and this and this, of course they're having a bad day, you know? And, and it's just that simple human skill of empathizing with another person and trying to see them from their perspective is is so valuable. And it's the kind of thing that allows for conversations, peaceful and and hopefully productive yeah. conversations about issues people disagree on because you are able to hear what they're saying, yeah. process it from their point of view, and then you know, go from there. It's a back and forth conversation rather than who can yell the loudest their opinions and be the most right. No, I imagine in the uh, acting community, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is the type of actor that's uh, very supportive of other actors and actresses and then you have the type that's sort of in it all for themselves and they can be pretty cutthroat. Well, just like any profession, you know, there's, you gotta take the good and the bad, you know, together, but... 
to, to me, the kind of actors I like to work with and the kind of actor I hope that I am um, is, is a team sport. You know, you can't... I've, I've met actors and worked with actors who, let's say, treat the technical staff like they don't exist. And to me, that's offensive because they are the ones that are making this possible for you. And everything, they are working just as hard, if not harder, than you are. Oh, music, lighting, music, set light, design. Every element of it. The person who, you know, photocopies the script. The person who does the marketing. Every element of it has to work together. And everybody brings their all to it. And that's how you get to do a play for people who come and see it. You know, I could sit in my room all day long and recite Shakespeare, but that's just for me. You know, if I right. want to share that with someone, I'm going to need help. Right. And you, know? you need the team. And you need a team. You need it's a, it's an ensemble that's for a reason. And I think community theater is the perfect example of that. I mean, good grief, how many volunteers we have that do things you wouldn't even think of that are enormously helpful yeah. in the process of putting a play on that you wouldn't even think about. We have somebody who comes and washes the tablecloths before we have an opening night reception. We have somebody who buys bottled water so that the cast can be hydrated. Right. You know, these tiny little things add up and they matter. Every bit of it matters, you know, to get to get the story told and the play is the thing and, and everyone works towards that goal however they can. They bring their skills however they can, you know. It's just something that, I guess... That, that was a very long-winded answer to your question. Yes, there are people that are difficult to work with, <laughs> and and I prefer the other kind. <laughs> oh, right, and you know, and sometimes I think it's not even ill will. Like you get in your groove, and you're like, okay, I don't want to talk to that person today, or I. But I, I recognize this um, here at work that I, uh, you know, would do this every day from noon to seven now, almost at the end of the day, and. You know, you saw the gentleman who walked in and he took out the trash. And he does janitorial services for all sorts of businesses around the area. And they hit me one day. I'm like, I don't know that guy's name. Yeah. I introduced myself. He's Jerry. And, and now Jerry, you know him. Jerry's been in Vietnam. Jerry's a survivor of Katrina. Wow. Jerry has an incredible life story. And he's an incredibly hardworking entrepreneur. Uh, it created a successful business out of the wreckage of Katrina. And, you know... Folks, if you just take the time, like, I know you might be tired or you're feeling lazy or you're just frustrated with the world, like you were saying, people, a day can be all sorts of things for a given person. But if you are in that mood, just take the time to just reach out to somebody who's always around you that you've never really talked to. Mm -hmm. It's worth the while because you will have incredible conversations. Sometimes conversations get stale, don't they? Like mm -hmm. with when you're talking to the same people over and over again. And I'd imagine that's what's pretty fun about a, a new production. Like, you come in, new people are auditioning. We get to start over building this world. Uh, blank page while. is my favorite thing. Blank page, figuratively and literally, are my favorite things. Uh, blank pages scare me. Oh, they can be scary, too, but <laughs> that's also part of the fun, right? You're right. scared, and what's going to happen? <laughs> and maybe it'll be good, and maybe it won't be. But I think you learn just as much either way. So, folks, go check out Little Women. Please do. Join Playhouse. us in Concord. And they can go to the Cloverdale Plans. Cloverdaleplans.org. Uh, you can definitely check us out on social media to see all the links to all the things we're doing. Uh, and you can always call the box office at 262-1530. And folks, you will not be disappointed. And uh, 
how you are putting on this production again with that sort of uh, slim down and you know like you said you can't jump from Paris to New York to all these different settings I love that it's relying on Alcott's words um, so I've, I've got to get by there please do absolutely um, it's good I was going to go to Atlanta this weekend but it's going to be the weekend after aha so, so now you actually have no excuse you just told me <laughs> You're right, and you know I'm in a box now. You're in a box now, but I actually want to go, so it's not, <laughs> it's a good box to be in. Good. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for thank joining you. me tonight. Thank you for having me. Always good to talk to you, Joey. Absolutely, and love to have you back. It doesn't have to be a play going on. Okay, Just whatever. Cool. Whatever. If you if you got something you want to say, oh, always. But that's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll definitely have you back. Thank, thank you. you again. again, folks, this has been the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'll be back tomorrow night with. Uh, well, a local comedian, and he's also single dad with a little daughter. It's a focus of a lot of his comedy and should be a fun discussion about, well, something that scares the hell out of me more than any blank page. But you were so far.